0: Go ahead, Nathan, ready? whenever you're ready. Okay, here we go. Wait, hold on, let me get a swig of my whiskey. Lucky. Ah, there we go. I'm out of beer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Steve, who are you?
0: <laughs> uh, I don't know anymore. <laughs> I have been searching. Welcome to Following the Fire. Thanks for joining us on this journey through the wilderness. Just like Israel followed the pillar of fire and smoke,
2: we want to take a new look at our beliefs and just follow Him. And like Israel, we get it wrong a lot, we get lost a lot, but we're doing our best to to go where God leads us. I'm Nathan. And I'm Steve. Don't you know it's all I have But even on my heart can't compare with what Welcome to Following the Fire. It is book club day. We're going to be talking about the making of biblical womanhood by Beth, Beth Allison Barr. Really excited to talk about it. But first, we've invited a special guest to join our conversation. Yeah,
0: we have Allison Buxton. I've known Allison for, we just figured out, uh, over a quarter of a century, which makes me feel not old at all. <laughs> Uh, since our time at Oklahoma Christian University, and uh, I, th- I thought that you would be perfect person to uh, have on this podcast about this book specifically, Al, because I don't know why, just you being you <laughs> makes me makes me think that this would be perfect for you to talk about. So, why don't you introduce yourself a bit? Tell us about your background, and we'll then we'll uh, then Nathan will kind of give a overview of the book, and then we'll go from there.
1: Okay. Well. Um, so yeah, it's been. It's been almost a quarter of a century, a little bit more. That's crazy. I can't believe we've known each other that long. Yeah. Um, so I am a Church of Christ kid, kind of, but I think not the way you guys were Church of Christ kids. <laughs> so I grew up, you know, C of C, and that was kind of the, those are the churches we attended when I was a kid for the most part. Um but my home life was very different. I sometimes like to say we were nominally Church of Christ. So I was raised uh, at home to ask any question, read any book, uh, philosophy, music, art, it was all on the table, right? Um, And so my parents just really, really encouraged me and my sister to explore and figure out who we were and be ourselves and everything. it turns out that I'm actually an Enneagram Eight, and so being an Eight and a girl in the Church of Christ was challenging. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes, mm-hmm. um, I grew up with a real tension around faith. I was I was a little bit mad at God for a while, honestly, um, mm. because He'd made me female, and I didn't understand why I would be created to be less because that was the message that Mm -hmm. I felt like I was getting at church most of the time Mm -hmm. youth group all that good stuff so I kind of struggled along with it and it was I don't know it was a good way to grow up I guess like my parents were super we were tight as a family so I kind of because of that tension that I had with the outside world the atmosphere at home was very close um felt very safe there and I mean, I told the line as well as I could, right? Tried to do the right thing. I went to a Church of Christ high school, followed by a Church of Christ university. And I married a good Church of Christ boy. And it was it was just sort of, that's what faith meant to me. It meant sort of trucking along with this tension of who am I and what does God expect of me? And why did he handicap me almost? I um, mm. can't mm. really serve him as well as i would like to if what he really wants is a meek and quiet spirit then i'm probably uh lost forever <laughs> um, <laughs> so we attended the same church of christ that i grew up in as a kid after we got married and it was kind of, it was on the liberal end of Churches of Christ, it really was. We introduced instruments at some point, which caused one of many church splits for that particular congregation. Wow.
2: And maybe a letter in the newspaper? I don't there,
1: know. Yes, we were disfellowshipped publicly <laughs> multiple times via the wow. local newspaper. Um, yeah, so that was kind of that was the stew that I grew up in and that I carried with me into adulthood. And at some point along the way, I started reading some dangerous authors and became reformed. So poor Jonathan came home from work one day. I said, guess what, honey, I'm reformed. And he was like, what does that mean? (laughs) Well, kind of maybe a Calvinist now. (laughs) (laughs) So that was an interesting path. Uh, We became Presbyterian, and we have been in the Presbyterian church now for, oh my gosh, it's been 14 years since that happened. Um, really? Yeah. But uh, I say 14 years, 13 years, and then pandemic happened. Um, oh, right, right. <laughs> So we're kind of, yeah, we're, we're between churches right now. I no longer really claim the Reformed title. And um, we're just sort of sitting this thing out, trying to figure out what we're going to do when it's safe to get out and about, you know, because... Two mm-hmm. of our kids are too young to be vaccinated, so we're not quite ready to jump into visiting churches yet. But yeah, that's, that's the general overview. A few years back, I started really diving into basically gender studies. And mm-hmm. I, I got the wild hair to, to do my own research and figure stuff out. So I read The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir, which is the closest thing, I guess, that feminists have to a Bible. And I read <laughs> feminine mystique and some other stuff and bell hooks. I just kind of went down this rabbit hole, and now yeah. I am here. I am. <laughs> I don't know where I am. No, it's
2: <laughs> here. I am. Hear me roar. Yes, something that, like that. I don't know which one that is. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that that is
0: quite the journey. I before I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but um, how what's the a uh, feel of women's roles in p- the Presbyterian church? I'm curious.
1: Well, uh, uh, it depends on which flavor of Presbyterian you're talking about. So there's the okay. PCUSA, which is a little bit more broad-minded. They have some women pastors. Um, uh, they're definitely more open on issues like that. Uh, but that was not our branch. We were in the Presbyterian church in America, which is um, much more conservative and Once again, we found ourselves in a more progressive church within a very conservative denomination. And um, yeah, we're still kind of grieving the loss of that church right now, Um, Mm. even though we're the ones that left and we made the change. They didn't shift. Uh, PCA is very traditional when it comes to women. Um, A few years ago, we actually, the pastor of the church that I was at Put together a bunch of women from across the denomination. And we each, you know, contributed a chapter. We actually wrote a book about women's roles really? in PCA. And um, wow. yeah, my chapter was about feminism. So the reviews, <laughs> never read the reviews on the Amazon, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> um, my chapter was a little bit harder to swallow, I think, for some folks. But yeah, PCA is definitely toes the traditional line on women. So,
2: What's the name yeah. of the book?
1: Uh, co-laborers and Co-heirs. All right.
2: Nice.
1: Yeah, it's very... Um, uh, it's, oh. it's kind of... What's the word for it? It's very... It's kind of specific to the PCA. Um, sure, okay. But because the Presbyterian church structure is really similar to the Church of Christ in some ways, hmm. uh, there's probably... There's some crossover for sure. It's not like a set of experiences that's unique to the PCA, but um, the flavor of the book, I would say, is very, very PCA.
2: Right. Mm. What is the word for that? I say inside baseball, which is already an inside baseball term.
1: Right. It's like, (laughs) you know, like intramural sports. I don't, I don't.
2: Insidious? (laughs) Insidious. Or,
1: yeah. How?
0: I don't know. There's a word. There's got to be a word.
1: Hmm. I
0: know there is one. I Come on, Allison. You're the, you're the attorney. You're supposed to have to be good with words, right?
1: <laughs> uh, i tapped out. It's the end of the day. I got
2: nothing. <laughs> Man, me too.
0: Nathan, why don't you go ahead and give us an v- overview of the book we're, we're talking about.
2: So, Allison and Steve... I don't. Have you heard? Have you watched How It's Made videos before? Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? Yes. I
0: uh, don't know that I have. Like they, they go inside a factory and show you how like crayons are made and stuff. Yes, crayons is the best is possibly yes. the best one. Okay. Cray- Noah Noah is a huge fan of those. He always used to call them How They Make It
2: videos. How they make Dad? It.
0: Can we watch a How They Make It video?
2: Exactly. And my maybe a year ago, my son, five year old at the time, son was very into How It's Made videos, and I am fascinated by them. Uh, my favorite one of all time is a classic Sesame Street segment where they show how saxophones are made. Um, but each, all the machine sound effects are actually someone playing a saxophone. Really? So it's, so they're like honking, you know, honking on the saxophone. Uh, really cool. But I've watched, you know, Legos, how chains are made, matches, umbrellas. Um, And I think what draws me to this kind of video is that they pick something really common, uh, something I interact with all the time, but I never stop to think, how did this get here? In my imagination, it just may well have always been here. But then you watch the video and it reveals this world of machinery and materials and industry, shows us how, how it got here. I had the same fascination as I read The Making of Biblical Womanhood, by Beth Allison Barr. Barr's a medieval historian at Baylor University, and she starts with an idea that I, uh, and maybe you, had assumed had always existed. The doctrine of male headship and female submission that in our time has often simply been called biblical manhood and womanhood. Uh, Then she lifts the curtain and walks us through the history of this relatively recent idea. She's not a theologian or a pastor, She's a historian, and this is definitely a history book. Uh, She starts at the beginning of history, way, way back. Uh, We learn about the beginning of agriculture as patriarchy takes hold in nearly every society, geography, and era. And in this patriarchal world, we're shown how the Bible does reflect its, its background, its patriarchal background, but also she shows how it rebels against it. Uh, Walking through scripture to the early church, and then Barr's specialty, which is medieval Christianity. We see the evolution of Christian teaching about men, women, and gender roles. And it's so powerful to see the context and changes that our ideas have have gone through. Um, They didn't always exist. They formed over time. So in the making of biblical womanhood, we meet female deaconesses and apostles. Uh, leaders and teachers, all just in the text of the Bible. We hear medieval sermons about how the wedding ring is a reminder not to love and submit to your husband too much, and why it's better for a woman to be a virgin than to take on the less spiritual role of just the day-to-day household wife. Barr shows how the Reformation impacted Christian thought about women and hierarchy, moving uh, the ideal for Christian women from the rejection of men and sex and childbirth to the home reflecting just the economics of the time. Finally, uh, Barr shows how our assumptions and even some intentional changes to biblical translations have obscured the role of women in the early church and painted our culture of biblical womanhood on top of scripture, a scripture that often would go against that view. This book was a powerful reminder that our culture impacts how we read and interpret the Bible. One antidote is to borrow from our Christian brothers and sisters across geography, time, and denomination, which is a discipline that many evangelicals, including myself, have really underdeveloped. At the end of her book, uh, Bar the Historian takes her professor's hat off for a moment and challenges us to consider Jesus and how his ministry empowered women. She says, Christian patriarchy was built stone by stone throughout the centuries. And she says, just because complementarianism uses biblical texts doesn't mean it reflects biblical truth. I'll repeat what she said again. Just because something uses biblical texts does not mean it reflects biblical truth. In The Making of Biblical Womanhood, Barr writes, complementarianism is patriarchy, and patriarchy is about power. Neither have ever been about Jesus. Mm. What if we were serious about allowing the Bible to inform our ideas about power and society instead of the other way around? Isn't it time we became more like Jesus? Isn't it time for Christians to set women free? Wow, that's pretty good. Makes me want to read the book. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I I don't know about you, but I, I really, I was challenged. Uh, this is a definitely a blind spot in my faith upbringing, his history. Yeah. So I just really enjoyed this book and I learned a lot. I have a new vocabulary, I feel like, just from from this book. Allison, what what things jumped out to you? What did you think?
1: So the very first thing that ever jumped out to me from this book, my, my mother actually gave me a copy of this this summer to read and she handed it to me, and I looked at the title, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, and I just sort of looked at it and looked at her, and I said, there's no such thing. <laughs> there's no such <laughs> wow. thing as biblical womanhood. Oh. <laughs> but I'll be curious to see what the author says.
0: Right, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I
0: think biblical womanhood should have, like, large, like, huge air quotes around it. Yes,
1: or massive. Um, yeah, so this is something that, I mean... I, I guess I could just be facetious. Biblical womanhood's obviously been on my mind my whole life. <laughs> right. It's not something that we can escape. <laughs> right. Um, I I absolutely, I, I really enjoyed the book. I, I think the thing that, for me, it was as if there were all these puzzle pieces floating around out there. So, you know, having mm. read some medieval literature And then being somewhat familiar with politics as they now stand and church politics and all the things that are going on in evangelicalism in America right now, there's just all this stuff sort of floating around. And I feel like Dr. Barr does a great job of just bringing it together. She sort of, you know, you said she lifts the curtain and lets us sort of see. And all those disparate pieces from history, how did we get from these stories of these martyrs and saints who are virgins and this is the highest good and you can be a nun and you can serve God and you can be Julian of Norwich, you know, living in a tower and right. to the point now where our single friends who are women in church congregations are, are treated like they're, they're not full people. There's just, there's there's yeah. no way for them to really serve God because they can't, they can't be ordained. They can't, do anything up front. They can't talk. And if they don't have a man, then who even are they? And so the way she's able to just sort of trace that bright line through history, bring it all together, I thought was just brilliant. Sadly, I do think this is one of those books that the people who (laughs) I think need to read it most (laughs) might be disinclined to do so. It's, I've, I've been struggling to really Try to understand why, at least in the circles that we've been in relatively recently, we can, we're happy to talk about race. I mean, finally, yeah. <laughs> to be clear, yeah. finally, we're happy to talk about <laughs> reconciliation and um, trying to see the image of God in all of our brothers and sisters, regardless of their skin color or, you know, maybe through their skin color. Like, we're willing to have those hard conversations now. But this is one that I, in my experience, this is a conversation that, I don't know, I've, I've, I do know people who are willing to have the conversation, but this one seems to be particularly challenging,
0: mm. and I'm
1: not sure why.
0: It's <laughs> um, a good question.
1: I mean, if we, can, if we can assent, at least theoretically, to the idea that the same passages that Christians have used to justify slavery— are the same ones in many cases that we use to justify the different treatment of women. Why can't we talk about it? Why can't, why is that yeah. a bridge too far?
0: Is it the not talking about it or is it that we just assume that the other person just doesn't agree or. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I, don't know I don't know. Well, it's, you know, I, I agree completely the, you know, it's one thing to, like read a book like that, that finally puts the pieces that you were answers, the questions you were already asking. But what about the people who aren't asking that question yet? Yeah. Are they going to, you know, interact with this book or, or if they do, are they just going to harden that shell? Right. Because it, it is one of those things that she claims, you know, just talking about patriarchy, let's just talk about, just zoom out to patriarchy in all of time. Um, she talks about how that is the culture, you know, Christian, Christianity or Christians, you know, if we're claiming that that is the godly role model that that's just what everyone else is doing. And if you now zoom back into uh, 2020 in North America, what is our culture fighting about? What is our culture doing? I think what you'll find is that these lines, uh, they probably mirror some other cultural lines in our beliefs and it's it's kind of those cultural those cultures dictate more than the bible do you know what we're going to believe mm.
0: yeah true I mean I think that the the, the female male issue is partly because kind of like you alluded to Nathan that like worldwide like physically you know men are on average larger and stronger than women they can lift heavier stuff right mm-hmm. Women, of course, nobody talks about how women can handle way more pain and deal with way more difficulty than men can. <laughs> you know, there's the occasional like uh, sketch about like man colds, you know, <laughs> being so horrible and terrible and and uh, right. like they're dying because they've got a cold. But uh, it's just it's just one of these things that it's it's a bit kind of akin to the issue with uh, homosexuality in in the sphere. That it's like, well, it's so obvious that that's just how nature is set up to be, and the the argument often starts. It starts at Genesis one or two, you know, like, well, man, man was created first, and woman was like, ah, I guess you need some help, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so it's it, and it's like the the fact that it starts there is so frustrating to me, especially after reading this book because you know, she she talks about how you know if you really look at the, What's going on in that in Genesis in the beginning of Genesis? The the man being sort of put in charge of stuff is because they screwed up. <laughs> it's not like God said this is how it should be. It's like, yeah, y'all screwed up. But now you're gonna pay the price and have difficulties this a different way. And you know, women have difficult childbirth with it before theoretically and all this stuff. And uh, it's just I don't know. It's just—it's frustrating to me, uh, having having grown up in in that mindset, and the, and it's like when you when you have the the blinders lifted, it's like suddenly it's
2: like how did I not see this before? Okay. I've just uh, going back to that. This isn't not in the book at all, but that argument that man was created first. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've I, that's never made sense to me because man was created last, and the whole point, <laughs> like there was several days. Yeah. Light was created first, right? And then... Well, theoretically, fish and birds should be... Fish and birds, are we under the fish and the birds? Right? It was like, then he made all the animals and all the crawly, creepy things, and then man, and then woman. How in the world did we cut out everything and say, like, man was made first, that means that we're in charge, when the whole text is like this pinnacle, and it's like, what if the pinnacle is women? As the... like (laughs) Right? and then the, the peak of creation human 2.0 woman right <laughs> yeah so it that wasn't done until he created woman right
0: right
1: so one um, of my one of my favorite things I've actually heard is Nadia Weber, who's one of my favorite people <laughs> yeah she's fantastic <laughs> um, in her book uh, shameless i think she talks about that genesis account and she she puts a different spin on it where she says, in the beginning, you know, God created them male and female. He created them male and female. And we've always heard that to be, well, he created them male first, one guy, and then female second, she's over here, right? What if he created them male and female? And we're all
2: both. Male and female. <laughs> yeah, Which is what the text, which is what the, you know, we, in a... Uh, in the book we read that as we start to look at translations and, and why it matters how we translate things like gender inclusive words like Adam. Adam mm-hmm. the the Hebrew word for humanity. It says God created a single human God created human, male and female, male and female, he created them. Yeah. So it it like the you know, one of the claims of this book is let's grapple Let's actually grapple with the full text of the Bible, and and try to understand not only what it meant to those those people, but not write our culture on top of it. Which is funny because the the, the attack that the attack works both ways. So for maybe complementarianists, they say uh, Christians who are uh, who are egalitarian, who are advocating for an equality of the sexes, are just following the Feminism of the 90s or something, right? Writing that wave of culture and what's acceptable to our society. But um, Barr turns it around and says, no, it's actually complementarianism that followed the culture and wrote that on top of the Bible. And she she says, uh, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing Christians that oppression is godly. And that this patriarchal system or even hierarchical system is one that we are supposed to uphold instead of radically reject like Christ did. Yeah. What's just in reading this book, uh, what is something that you had never heard before that jumped out to you um, that, that kind of opened, opened your eyes or that you hadn't seen before?
1: I I think that uh, one thing for me was that the discussion of the translations in the nineties,
0: um,
2: mm, mm-hmm.
1: Zondervan and or was it Zondervan and the NIV? I can't remember anyway. It was the ESV. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the ESV. Um, Zondervan and yeah, because the ESV is huge in the PCA. The ESV is what we use if we are Reformed. Mm, um, interesting. But I remember that. I remember that when I was a kid, you know, a teenager. I remember the conversations about how oh, they're trying to liberalize the Bible. They're they're messing with the word of god and um, they're inserting things that aren't there and they're trying to overlay their political agenda on you know god's perfect and holy scripture and it's i just the vehemence with which everyone reacted to that but now knowing that the whole thing is part of this (laughs) you know centuries old conversation about what the bible means and what the words say and um yeah, I that one hit me particularly hard. Just I I think because because I do remember it. I remember those conversations in my Christian high school about what translation we were using. So
0: yeah, I mean, which translation you're using is always a huge deal. Yeah. And growing up, my grandfather he was he was like KJV is the best, but it's hard to understand. So you know, uh, American standards. Better, but it's a little hard to understand. Still, so New American Standard is probably pretty okay. But remember, like the the new NIV was coming out, and I remember those exact conversations, Allison, because um, especially when I was going to Oklahoma Christian University as a Bible major, <laughs> that's, you know, constantly talking about translations like ad nauseum. And what people don't realize is how much we we, we have this idea in our head that these are like hundred pure men who are sitting around the table, all like going through every word together and agreeing upon everything all together. We assume, Oh, well, if all these people did all this work to figure out what, what it says, then it must be accurate. It must be correct. And I remember uh, teaching a class about how, um, how translations sometimes got it wrong. And the one, one woman was very disturbed by that the fact that this, some the God would allow a translation to be quote unquote wrong. That it had to be right in some way. I'm like, this word is not this word and this word is actually this word and you know, etc. And then then looking at the ESV and like the, the why things were done in certain ways they are is was pretty shocking to me as well.
2: That's another one of those like culture, like you your background culture is just the the water that you are the fish in. And translation, yeah. it it does it feels like you're attacking God if you either criticize a translation or even, you know, the step before criticizing is just knowing like, oh, the translating is a choice. Uh, you Often a word happens, you have to go one way or another or pick, you know, uh, and sometimes you're, you're not even going to know that you're assuming something. But there are so many examples like the I, one of the things that jumped out to me was, um, Junia, the apostle, the female apostle in, uh, Romans and how a translation choice happened because someone said, well, it must have been Junius because there, there surely wouldn't have been a, a female apostle. And so several translations just changed it. Um, yeah. But the most, you know, when we look back at the best manuscripts, they say, no, Junia. And Junius is not a real, it's like trying to turn Nathan into a female name. There's not a Nathania. There's, right, there's, it, it just doesn't make sense. But it started from the culture. It started from the assumption and accidentally went backward into the Bible. And it, it changes how we read it. Or like deacon and servant. That was. Yeah, with Phoebe. That that was one that really, it, it almost seemed Sometimes a translation problem seems like, yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? We're people, we're, we we got to make these choices, it's hard. But there are several translations that when the Greek word deacon is used for a man, we do the thing called transliteration where you don't translate it. You just, it says deacon in Greek, we write it out in English, deacon. But it's a word that means something, it means servant. But when it's applied to a female, we don't write deaconess or, or even deacon. We just write servant so there's an implication of a title for a man um but then just like a you know a subvert subservient role for a woman even though it's the same it's the same authority or the same word just some crazy stuff or the or just the fact that marriage is not a word (laughs) that is used in Hebrew in the Old Testament yeah
1: I had no idea
2: (laughs) none of those people were (laughs) married Um, and you, this is probably how German works, Steve. What's the German word for wife? Is it just woman? Frau? Yeah. Woman. Woman. yeah. Yeah. Same in Hebrew. And so there are times when a, a woman is described. And so they just have a word for it. Woman. But someone who maybe has our lens of how our society is structured and what is important for people, like for us. It's important to be married and to be a wife and a husband, and so they would translate the word "woman" into "wife," but that doesn't that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes you wonder about the whole uh,
0: biblical marriage thing, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is biblical marriage? Not to take us off topic.
1: But <laughs> uh yeah. I mean, Rebecca and Isaac went in the tent, right? Like we just went in the tent,
0: <laughs> right? So that's pretty good. much what it was.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> By definition, cohabitating before marriage, impossible. Same thing. There you go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. One of the things that blew my mind a little bit was about, I mean, when, when this topic comes up often, uh, I mean, actually just my daughter the other day, she's like, Paul sucks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I may or may not have said that myself a few times
0: (laughs) (laughs) because I mean, Jesus had nothing to say about women being subservient and quiet It was quite the opposite with, with Jesus actually. So all the stuff we get about women being quiet and subservient and all that stuff and staying at home it all comes from what we read from the letters that Paul wrote or supposedly wrote. So a, a lot there's a lot of uh, I think a lot of shade thrown at Paul when I think one thing that I'm finding from the, what I found from this book and I've actually been able to back it up elsewhere with other scholars and things like that is that we've just really misunderstood a lot of things that Paul said. And the one that really hit me across the face really was the first Corinthians 14. Cause that one's off often used like women. Are, well, it's like very clear women are to remain silent in the church unless they're singing or asking questions <laughs> in class. Um, and how, it's very possible. I mean, it's not slam dunk, but it's very, very possible that it, what he was doing was saying. when He's talking about this woman being selling in the church. It was all about. He was using a rhetorical technique to show how wrong that thing was. Because right after he says that, he's like, "Who do you think you are? Right. Do you think g- g- God gave you the scriptures? You know?" And so, like, wow, the very verse that we may be using to make all these rules and dictates and policies maybe the exact one that Paul was using to say, that's not what we should be doing. (laughs) It was a huge like wheel grinding moment in my head when I read that.
1: Yeah. That one, that one kind of blew me away too. That one was very, um... but at the same time, when, when this was one of those moments where I read that passage and I'm like, of course it, that makes Mm -hmm. so much sense because of, the, you know, as you just get the, the what, what did you get uh, better information? Like, did you get a different gospel? Uh, right. The idea that Paul could be using uh, maybe even sarcasm? I, I don't know. But, yeah. but here's a guy who can just sort of saunter up to the Areopagus in Athens, you know, and casually yeah. rattle off a bunch of Greek poetry and be like, oh, yeah. By the way, your guys knew what they were. They didn't know what they were talking about, but I can tell you what they were talking about. This is a guy who's a Roman citizen. He's educated. I mean, of course he knows how to write and use rhetorical devices. (laughs) Yeah. But that's just not the way we were taught to read that. I mean, ever. Uh, Yeah. That was was very much a light bulb kind of moment.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And we forget that Paul, like we are very entrenched in our culture. So was Paul. And that there was cultural stuff around him. And I, I mean, I, I say this over and over and over, but we just forget that that's not our culture that that was written in. And to assume any of this stuff, and I think people I've talked to who are kind of going through a deconstruction process or have changed, like taken a new look at their faith for whatever reason, that's a huge part of it to realize that so much of the Quote unquote inerrancy or infallibility of the Bible that we've been raised with is not taking into account that this was written to different people than us. And I, I
2: think that's that's a huge part of this this book in general. And she she's she's advocating for reading the whole text, all of the context, but lining it up with what we know of Paul and his writings, and what we know of Jesus, and and what that his his mission was, because you know the same, you know just just to be clear, like she's not arguing. Sometimes the Bible means the opposite of what it says. Um, the Bible was written with no period punctuation mark, you know, no periods, no capitalization, just one run-on sentence is what it looks like in Greek, mm-hmm. without even spaces. So. Um, when people translate it, they have to put, is this a question mark or a period? Right. And we know in English how, how much that matters. And there are verses where it's so, so Paul uses this specific rhetorical device all the time. It's oh, yeah. really unhelpful. God or Paul, I don't know who to blame. <laughs> um, it's really unhelpful to, to have a Bible where someone will say this clearly obvious thing that is Wrong. Right. Like we have Bible verses that are do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You know, the end. Wait, wait a minute. Is that the scripture? No. He very clearly, obviously, after that says, what a bunch of bogus rules. That's not the gospel. So it's easy for us to see the the device in in work there. He has the verse that says it is better not for a man not to touch a woman. I'm like, wait a minute, God. Um, But then he's like, but, you know, but then he refutes it and says, He's talking about this crazy Greek idea and Roman idea that women were were deformed males. They were um I, I loved I have a the first time I've ever written a face palm in a book.
1: <laughs> it was for um, Aristotle. For Yay. Aristotle. I was like
2: Aristotle, uh this is like the most male thing for a you know <laughs> A male he he was like talking about how like women are lesser than us they're deformed males but i suppose it's okay it is how we happen to reproduce the human race so i guess that's fine <laughs> i was like re- like that's <laughs> um, I, I told my kids that yesterday and they just looked at me with like jaws open like <laughs> what how <laughs> right so so paul quoting you know there are these crazy ideas about like the ideal is the man too bad that women happen, we have to deal with them. And so there are all these beliefs like, yeah, it's better not to get married, or it's, uh, um, or in this case, uh, what was the, or yeah, like w- women should be silent. Women should be silent in the assembly. And then he's like, come on, did, you know, y- you think that the Bible started with your culture? You know, he's like, get out of town. That's ridiculous. But, If you're translating this, it's a it's it's a difficult task, and if you don't put the air quotation marks around the plainly refutable passages, it's I mean it's really hard to to misunderstand these. And I was always like I grew up thinking like yeah you're not it's so funny our culture is that uh, like people should get married, especially single women in the church they need to be married. But what I grew up with was Paul saying like. Try really hard to just not be someone who needs to be married, right? Yeah. But if you must, <laughs> I suppose. So that are we are we taking God's design for marriage from this guy, right? Because <laughs> his his design was like try just don't do it, right? You know, I wish you were all like me, whatever that means for Paul.
0: Yeah, Allison, I was curious. So I'm curious about how what was it like. I mean, you kind of hit this in, the, in your intro, but what was it like growing up in a church that was so so set on women being silent in church?
1: So there's actually a great quote for this from the book. Um,
0: oh, good. Where
1: Dr. Barr is um, quoting Kate Bowler, and she says this. Evangelical girls learn about the limits of their own spiritual authority as an accounting of small details, little moments of encouragement or discouragement that nudge them toward a sense of being acceptable mm. um, uh. and that just nails it <laughs> um, acceptable uh. yeah it's we so I always felt like um. I mean, being male is the ideal state. It's just preferable. It's better to be a guy. And, you know, it's always explained in terms of, well, there's equal value in the sight of God, right? Men and women are, Mm -hmm. nobody's more important than anyone else. Um, In God's economy, we're all spiritually equal. Um, Right. But that is not how that works in real life separate but equal never means equal ever um and <laughs> as, yeah as far as i could tell i i had i had thoughts too and i was a little bit baffled about why when we all turned 13 and hit puberty that somehow the guys were suddenly supposed to be teaching class and leading everything and these are the yeah. same Idiots, no offense, who are like still pulling her hair, you know, in the hallway at school. Yeah. Like, what, what happened? How did how did they magically become, I don't know. Yeah,
0: I don't I, I remember a bar mitzvah.
1: <laughs> right? I know. And it's like, how did, and you know, part of the, the struggle, I think, for girls is, you know, and this is just part of the wider culture, not even a church issue necessarily. But it's like, girls hit 13 and all of a sudden, they become sexual objects, and so mm. we've got this, all this stuff going on in our bodies and our minds. And frankly, it's just pasted over with some really bad theology. <laughs> it just yeah. it makes it really hard to carry on as a girl, because in the in the end, if you have, um, you know, opinions, uh, some of us were unfortunately <laughs> prone to. Um, <laughs> If you have opinions and you have a desire to participate, just to participate, that's really, that's part of the problem. So you get to this point where you start asking, well, I'm, you know, oh, I'm having a hard time with this whole submission thing. I get it. Biblical marriage, blah, blah, blah. But do I have to submit to that guy just because he's a year older than me and leading singing? I don't understand why. Why? And it gets turned around on you as a girl. Well, that's that's part of your personal struggle to submit. That's clearly your spiritual mm. weakness. Um, not wow. being meek, not being quiet. So the whole thing just kind of it's a bit of a vicious cycle. Um yeah. if I were gonna be really harsh and bitter, I would call it gaslighting, but <laughs> that's probably not very gracious, so I won't do that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: unintentional yeah. gaslighting. I mean, like? yeah.
1: yeah I, I mean, I think that, I think that everybody, I, I struggle to remember anyone in any of the circles that I was in growing up who I could look at and say, this person had ill intent, yeah, right? right. I mean, we're, we're all doing our best. We're trying. And I get that. But this is a big deal. It's, it's really damaging and it has long-lasting damaging effects, and um, I don't know. I'm probably still just rebelling against it. If you want to know the honest truth, <laughs> well,
0: I mean, I mean, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't, blame you. You know, you're living your all your formative years being given this message that you are less than in some way.
1: Yeah, yeah. And she talks about the purity culture, the story from church camp with the bra straps. And you know, Ugh, making all yeah. these girls wear baggy shirts. Oh wow, that brought back a lot of memories. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, yeah, it's this. I don't know. It's a that sort of toxic soup of patriarchy and purity culture. And um, at one point, she says in the book that inerrancy creates an atmosphere of fear. Yeah, and.
0: Explain what explain what that means or how that works.
1: So I think that, that um, the idea of inerrancy is it's so important in evangelical circles because there's mm-hmm. this idea that if this, I think, and Nathan, I think you alluded to this earlier, if, if this part isn't 100% true, as in literally true, right, then what about the rest of it? I mean, if Genesis mm-hmm. is primarily an allegory, if there's stuff in genesis that overlaps with the epic of gilgamesh and so maybe we've got some mixing of some ancient cultures here what do we do how do we find any truth how do we do anything and suddenly we're all just grasping at straws and um yeah uh, Yeah. i just think it's easier it's easier for us to clamp down on people and things that we don't understand it's if, if we don't know exactly what the rules are and where the edges are, let's just not find them. Let's just, yeah. you know, let's be the dwarves in C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle, right? Where it's like, you're literally in heaven in Aslan's country, and they are convinced that they're not. Because it's just safer to sit in the dark. And, wow. and I think that when that happens, when we do that, people suffer. I don't think that's what Jesus came for. I don't think it's what he
2: intended. Yeah. Certainty is such an, that's a thing though. It Certainty becomes your blanket. It becomes your comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all, it's a false certainty. That's the problem. And so as, that's why it's scary when one thing crumbles. If, if the thing that you were holding to was this certainty, you, first of all, you don't question, you, you know, it's not okay to question and that, it wouldn't make sense because you, you, you've got it all nailed down, or you you know exactly how to interpret it all, and so, uh, that's you, you talked about how the you know, women basically have to find out what the right way is to be a woman through all these weird, you know, like there is no right way to be a woman. First of all, I mean, I'll say it twice. Even if you follow all the rules there's not actually a right way to do it. Right. You're like if you're a thirteen year old and you grow up into a woman, you're gonna hit all these weird boundaries that don't make sense. Because yeah. bad theology turns into this weird legalism where it's like, yeah, thirteen year old bra straps or um or or like, oh, I guess, you know, when is a man a man, thirteen? False, you know, that's <laughs> Um, and okay, now he's a man. And so now he's 13 in one day. He's like, we have to make up these rules. And what we don't notice is that we are really overcompensating for a bad theology. And, but we don't write them out loud, or we don't write them down. We don't speak them out loud. It's the woman's burden to run into them and be criticized and slowly form into this this thing that we kind of made on accident, you know?
0: Hmm.
2: And her, her answer to this, her answer to the, is Jesus set women free. Would Jesus be on the side of the camp counselor who is shaming these 12 and 13 year old girls? Or would he be, or would he be like, do you know what? You know, let the children go and have fun. You know, Jesus is not the shaming of the, right? Of the innocent camp women um, <laughs> and, and she specifically says jesus has always set women free mm. and I kind of want to know is that is that true is that the gospel that we believe
1: I, I that's so that's one of the things that over the past several years has just completely caused me to do a 180 I, I mean being at church and looking around and saying wait a minute I'm not allowed to be myself here, but I can be myself at my office where I mm. have a job and, you know, the respect of my colleagues, I can, I can be myself there, but not, I'm not allowed to at church. Um, something's really wrong. <laughs> and that's the case, you know,
0: especially like you mentioned at the beginning, as an Enneagram eight, something sort he likes to lead and, and, be you know lead the charge for things and be in being a leadership kind of position or kind of naturally falls into that I, I i you know from from all the men in the world i'm sorry <laughs> 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 that you had to deal with this in church for for <laughs> on top of everything else you have to deal with you know in, in in life um there's a a really good article on this website authentictheology.com and it refers to a study in 2018 of Churches of Christ and the impact that uh, the, the this practice of the male patriarchy and women being silent all that, and that, what that has, the impact that it has on long-term on, on girls and women. And um, so it says, for women having an all-male congregational leaders while growing up results on, in, on average, lower self-esteem, uh, less education, higher unemployment, uh, an authoritarian judgmental view of God, uh, psychological and emotional and economic gender gap, causation of long-term comparative harm out to girls in the congregation. I mean, it's like, it, it's all this. It's a problem. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
1: yeah. It's it's
0: not just a, in a, an opinion issue, I think. Uh, I've, over the past few years, I've really become pretty pretty hard-lined on this on this specific topic because the studying that I, I mean I Allison you knew me 25 blah 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 years ago I was very the other direction <laughs> hardcore <laughs> and the the studying and the learning that I've done has lead, led me to the point where I just I can't uh, stand by and let this go on and be a part of that anymore which is you know as I've said early in an earlier in earlier podcasts one of the reasons we left the church we were at we were at because it it, to me it's it's like slavery like you mentioned uh, Allison as far as what would we do if we had a church where black people were only allowed to, to teach black people and kids for example that would not be okay and to me this is exactly the same thing we have half of our our congregation is told to be silent and that we can't hear from them. I mean, growing up, my mom was always kind of the leader in our house. Because she was she's a very strong personality person. And she was always the leader. And my dad was, you know, happy to let her lead lead the family. And I, I it was fine, you know. I, I had no issues with it. But we get to church, and she's got to be quiet. And uh, she's a much better speaker than my dad. But he would get asked to do the Lord's Supper, and she wouldn't. And I know that everybody at our congregation would love to have classes from her. Cause she knows she's she's a great teacher. She's brilliant. But what are you going to do? And it's just it's so sad and frustrating to me that this has gone on for this long. And I and I, I get it. I mean, it's you just breeze through the Bible. You read this. Oh, okay. Well, let's do it this way. And it's one of the the difficult things of being a Christian is is well being a human. Is not just assuming that you understand everything that you understand, but as we've det- as we've established that's easier
1: It is, yeah, and i this is one of those areas where um, I feel like the word deconstruction kind of doesn't do us any favors um, because it sounds like we're just sort of gratuitously tearing things apart, and I don't know, I think this is just growing up, right? yeah, like learning. And changing our minds, like, we're allowed to do that as Christians. That's sort of, if I could say one thing, and I had, like, a bullhorn, and I'm just going to stand on a corner, we are allowed to change our minds. We're allowed to get better information and learn and do things differently. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's change. It's scary, but it's not, um, it might be necessary. This is one of those areas where I think it's very necessary
2: not only are we allowed to change our minds we're supposed to change our minds yes There's
1: something about renewing them and <laughs> right something in there and, somewhere you
2: right? know I don't know if the pattern of our world patriarchy uh, is the thing that we are supposed to not follow right what pattern are we supposed to follow that of Christ who being in very nature God didn't consider that authority something to hold on to but he lowered himself. Um so as men are we grasping to hold some kind of power that we have is that Christ it, it, right or is is it a holding on that, that we need to be doing and in the very little amount that I know about feminism one quote has stuck out to me which is that oppression hurts everyone mm. um so even in let's say a patriarchal society where where men are on top and w- women are on bottom the damage done is to everyone.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: And uh, the damage to the church, uh, I think the the worst thing is to to girls who grow up and would have turned into something. They were the seed that was going to blossom into some creation and part of the church and part of God's plan to whatever their talents are, right? Or like, I love how C.S. Lewis talks about people who, you know, the more they become like Christ, the more they become like themselves, mm. who they were meant to be. Not, you know, um, he's not a blacksmith. He's a shepherd. Um, anyways, I just got distracted by my own analogy. <laughs> that was a good one. I'm going to write that down. Um, <laughs> we're supposed to change. Um, right. And I think that there is a Christ-likeness in letting go of some of those structures and powers. And I think that the church benefits the, the women grow up to be whoever they are, what, whatever it means to be a woman, just whatever it means to be a human, but so do men. Yes. And this bleeds into dating. Uh, you you have referred to purity culture and things like consent that we're really bad at, at teaching. I know that's a dirty word in Christianity for some reason, Yeah. but, um, it bleeds into marriage, and I can't remember whose whose book this was. That they asked people who who believe, you know, like maybe the the man should make the final decision, and they're Christians, and a pretty big percentage said, "Yeah, sure." But then they they went into their practices and found out nobody does that because it's such a toxic uh, relationship, and the the people who actually hold to that are living in a marital hell um mm. where they have learned that it's not possible to compromise, it's not possible to work things through or to be sacrificial and uh the fruit of that matters. The the fruit of of Christianity being the the hammer and the anvil for men and women has been either men and women who leave or just men and women who don't who don't live up to what they w- would want to be or you know. And there's just this world where if we let go and we follow Jesus into this crazy, there's no slave or free Greek or, I said it backwards, slave nor free, male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor whatever. Yeah, it's all in there. Yeah. there it's go. all in there. He, he's calling us to a just a humanity. And we want to put all the, the walls in the temple back up. We want to put all the barriers back up. And we're, we're hurting the church, I think. And we're hurting we're hurting a lot of a lot of little Christians. One one of the things that that to me did mean a lot and what I'm looking for in a church was one where I teach my son the value of men and women.
1: Yeah, that's a really critical point, talking about the damage that patriarchy does to boys is something that doesn't it's it's not as easy necessarily to see. We can look at girls like you say and say, Well, this is bad. They're, you know, the seed's not going to blossom what could have been if she'd been in a better environment. But um, there's this great quote again from bell hooks who this fantastic book, feminism is for everybody, highly recommend it. Um, But she basically says, patriarchy isn't going to save our sons.
2: Mm.
1: Paraphrasing. If it were, they would all be well. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) But um, patriarchy requires, it requires It requires a toxic form of masculinity. And I know that that's a really hard phrase for a lot of people to hear because it sounds like being male is bad, but that's not what it means. It just means like any good thing, we can can twist it, we can break it. And we've done that in a lot of ways. And we have to do that for the system to perpetuate. We have to take boys and tell them, well... I know that you're, you know, barely out of short pants, but it's time to get up front and teach the congregation now and you're not allowed to cry. Um you have one emotion that you're allowed to mm-hmm. experience and express and we we break them apart. We break children apart on mm-hmm. the altar of something that's unbiblical. I mean, it's just it's just wrong. <laughs> Jesus didn't Everybody loves I, I I remember the wild at heart phase during the nineties, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, early, yeah. early aughts. Um, love to talk about Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. Okay. That was one time he also cried. <laughs> he had meals. He hung out with hookers. He did a lot of stuff that, you know, manly men wouldn't do. He's the one who told right. us to turn the other cheek. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's no one is served by patriarchy and certainly not Christian patriarchy. We, we are damaging the church, I think.
2: Oh yeah. Absolutely. Talk about an institution that needs to be wise about choosing leaders, and our <laughs> own, our qualification is that you're, you, you got a an X and a Y.
1: Yeah, in our house we call it the God antenna. The what? The God antenna.
2: The God antenna. <laughs>
1: Sorry,
2: am I allowed to say that? I, I was allows you to speak to God, right? I had the internal dialogue. I was like, "Should I say penis? Am I allowed to?" <laughs> Does that make it explicit? Um, but should maybe we need a higher bar than that for? A maybe thought. I don't know. We could benefit from <laughs> from that. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Qualified, unqualified. So,
0: all right. So, what do we do? How do we fix this, guys? what's our What's our action plan?
1: <laughs> <sighs>
0: yeah, if we only knew. I guess start by <laughs> teaching our kids. Right, we all have kids here. Yeah, it's kind of one. Actually, one of one of the last straws with our with our congregation. We left. It was Christy saying to me, "She's like, I don't know if I can go there anymore with my very capable." of being a leader daughter sitting next to me who's not allowed to do that and reinforcing the idea in her mind that she's not capable or that she's not worthy of doing this. And, you know, in a lot of ways I I wish we had come to that conclusion earlier because she's like 19 now, but, um, you know, she's not done cooking, so (laughs) it's okay. But, I th- you know, I think starting with with our kids is is one definite place we can start, I guess. But and I just, I just was, it's it's one of those things that it's so ingrained in our society and in so many churches. It's not just Churches of Christ, like as we we know that like the Southern Baptist Church, especially, and like you mentioned, the Presbyterian Church. The more conservative you get, the more women are told to sit down and shut up. And I hate getting to the point where everybody just kind of. Divides until they are in places that make them comfortable and that are doing what they want them to do. But I mean, I, I don't know what to do sometimes. It's, I'm at a loss.
2: This is where you guys give us wise things so, so to do.
1: <laughs>
2: I think a actually a Christian life that's like Jesus is so much more attractive than we think it is. And so for adults, I think letting go of some of those things we're still holding on to out of the fear or certainty or just the, the baggage and starting to model lives that are just more Jesus-like. That's a, that's a Sunday school answer. But I think other Christians seeing that in our marriages or at work or in our interactions with the opposite gender or, or whatever that is mm-hmm. um, can be very compelling because when I see Jesus do that, it's compelling And he he did that all the time where he would see what everyone thinks of her, what everyone thinks of him, what they think it should be sought after, right? Who's the greatest or whatever. And he would take his clothes off and start washing feet. Um, Or he would approach the not Israelite, uh, not man people, children, women. And um, I think that we can do that as adults and as and children seeing us do that, I think, is even more important than us just teaching them the like the do's and the don'ts. But I also, um, Dr. Barr has this amazing advice, which is stop ignoring women in the Bible. Just read the like read the Bible to your kids, read the Bible to yourself, read the Bible in your church. There are women all over those pages. And don't keep ignoring them. Mm-hmm. They are they're. Uh, especially um she says if you don't know where to start and you don't like paul then open up romans 16 and pay attention to all the women leaders and evangelists and servants that he is encouraging and calling out by name that are in the bible in the early church and then start reading the stories of the Samaritan woman who um uh, who gives uh, Jesus a drink or the Sir Phoenician woman who challenges Christ or, or, or you know the Mary who studies at his feet just like the disciples they're all over if you if you just read it instead of keep silencing women which is what I feel like we were taught to do you have any final thoughts Allison?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Dr. Barr's advice just stop it stop it <laughs> stop it <laughs> really good no i think um the only thing i would add is that um something i've learned and i'm trying to do better and incorporate more and more is letting letting people explain themselves and listening to what people have to say about themselves Mm. um, and trying to educate myself about other people's experience in a way that doesn't burden them or lean on them too heavily but there's tons of books out there I mean oh my goodness everyone should always be reading everything Rachel Held Evans ever wrote right she was amazing and Nadia Boltzweber and like if you want to know about feminism go read some feminists don't read what a bunch of you know white dudes from the PCA have to say about feminism sounds scary
2: it sounds every time you say that word I get a little bit scared Allison (laughs) But it might change my mind, Allison.
1: (laughs) I know it might. Here's hoping. (laughs) Look, I'll just feminism is not scary. All it means is a movement against sexual exploitation and oppression. That's it. That's it. So that 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 sounds like it's
0: almost compatible with Christianity.
1: It's crazy, but it might be. What? (laughs) Yeah, Hmm. I, I think that allowing people the dignity to. Tell us who they are and what they've experienced is something that anybody can do, no matter what you believe, where you are in this journey, just pausing for a minute and listening because people are talking, just have to listen.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I was married 20 years before I, my wife and I really had this conversation, like sat down and really had this conversation about how this kind of thing had affected her. Yeah. And how she perceived things at at our church. I mean, she was, she was basically a deacon for a decade. Uh, she was, but but if you're a woman, you were called a ministry leader, right? A deacon, and you weren't invited to the deacons' retreats um, unless your husband happened to be a deacon, which I was, and so she accidentally got invited because she was with me. You know, and little things like that, and not even little things like that, but I mean, yeah. you know, things like that just kind of build up over time, over and over and over, and. Women are seen as not capable of doing all kinds of stuff, which is ridiculous, because I, I hope that we can see in our in our lifetimes a, a bigger shift toward this a true egalitarianism where there's true equality, especially in, in the, the realm of faith, because Jesus didn't come for men, he came for everybody. And I think that we explain away the Verse in Galatians, like Nathan was improperly quoting, about <laughs> there's no male and female here. It's this is this is not what it's about. It's about having a life that's like Jesus, no matter who you are.
2: Get the book, read the book.
0: Yeah. Don't
2: oppress people. <laughs> <You know?
1: laughs> help, help with being oppressed. I'm being oppressed. <laughs> nice. <laughs>
2: good,
0: good. So if you read the book, you are you are accepting the terms and conditions to no longer treat women differently. Right? Amen. Well, uh, thank you so much, Allison, for hanging out with us and talk, talking through this book. Um, I, I would love to hear more about Christianity and feminism sometime.
1: <laughs> well, thanks for I, having I, me. <laughs>
0: like, like Nathan was saying, that's that's like a dirty word.
1: <laughs> right. It is. It's right? People just cringe. It's, it's really funny.
0: I, I think you'd have a lot of good things to say. We'll see you guys later. Thanks so
2: much. Right. See you guys. Messages I thought you wanted to hear
0: but it only takes a whisper. Hey, thanks for listening to Following the Fire. If you'd like to see show notes for this episode, which includes links to everything we mentioned as well as all the scriptures, head on over to followingthefire.com and just click on this episode. There's also contact information on the website. Let us know what you think about the show and if you have any suggestions for future topics. Also, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you could. It really helps other folks find the show. And as always, thanks to the fabulous Daniel Wheat for the theme song and the music for the episode. You can find more of his stuff on Apple Music and Spotify. See you
2: later.